Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. The following is a message from Heritage Foods USA. Thanksgiving turkeys in America used to be different. They came from a wide variety of breeds. They were healthy and raised outdoors on small family farms. Their flavor? Exquisite. Continue this tradition with the same Heritage turkeys. Order yours now on www.heritagefoodsusa.com or call 718-389-0985. That's 718-389-0985. Welcome to Straight No Chaser on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we're broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Brunch is being served. I do love that Thelonious Monk riff. That is just so cool. It just makes me feel way cooler than I really am. Anyway, um, I have a great show today. Uh, We'll be talking in just a couple of minutes with Ben Hewitt. Ben is the author of a new book called Making Supper Safe, One Man's Quest to Learn the Truth About Food Safety. I spend a lot of time reading uh, trade blogs and uh, newsletters about the food systems and especially about food safety. Um, So I really enjoyed Ben's book and I'm looking forward to grilling him about how we do make supper safe and and what we should be worried about. So um, let's come right back in just a second with uh, Ben Hewitt of Making Supper Safe. This is Straight No Chaser. Welcome to Straight No Chaser, Ben Hewitt. How you doing? I'm great. How you doing, Katie? Oh, great. I'm so glad you could join me today on the phone. I know you're up in Vermont, so um, thanks for taking the time out of your busy morning. I'm are you, happy to do it. Are you farming up there? Yeah, we've got a small farm. We've got about 40 acres. Nice. Uh, a little diversified operation. Well, I was doing, uh, I was at the gym uh, earlier this week, one of the few times this week I went, and uh, of course I read crummy magazines like People, and uh, there was your review of... Um, now I can't even remember. I was just so I was so gobsmacked to see your byline there. <laughs> in People magazine? Yeah, you had a review in, in no, it was in um no, it was uh you know, one of the other ones like Marie Claire or I don't know, one of those girly mags. I I really so don't it, pay it attention was, to it, Wait a minute, it was my someone's Someone with your name, Ben, is reviewing books. Okay, it's books. another Ben Hewitt. No way. Yeah, yeah, And here yeah. I was thinking I was so cool there's, for having booked this guy who's like, you know, got his byline no, and he's major mag. That's what it is. I'm going to write yeah. to the editor right now. I'll be calling uh, you him know, right I've after this show. I've got such a good life, um, and, and I'm so <laughs> handsome. It, this happens all the time. So I believe it. I can see your picture on the back of your book jacket. <laughs> That was meant to be a joke, by the way. So. <laughs> no, I know, I know. I'm just right, kidding. Right, okay. So, enough. Ben, I just so to make sure let's we're hear. Uh, but let's hear all about who you are and why you started to write this book. What, yeah, what got so you, going? I, you know, I operate a, a small, diversified farm up mm-hmm. in northern Vermont, um, and so I have a you know a real interest in uh, particularly small scale food production um, and distribution. Um, and the book also sort of evolved out of my first book, which um, is called The Town That Food Saved, which was about um, sort of a, an economically challenged community up here in Vermont that's sort of trying to reinvigorate its community um, 
by creating a healthy, you know, small-scale food system, localized food system. And, uh, you know, as I was sort of reporting that book, one of the things I realized is that one of the, the greatest impediments um, to uh, creating viable, small-scale, ag-based, food-based businesses um, is uh, re- the regulatory system um, around food, which is, you know, almost always tilted in the favor of large-scale commodity production. Sure. And it's almost always around the issue of food safety. And so I became really sort of intrigued, you know, trying to sort of, I wanted to sort of dig into that and see, you know, what, what are the real issues here? And one of the interesting things that happened, um, you know, I, fairly on, early on in my reporting, maybe I was about a third to half the way through the book, was I really started getting intrigued by the whole um, issue of, of uh, the human body and its relation to bacteria. Um, and, and, you know, should we be asking sort of perhaps... Um, larger questions uh, about our response to these foodborne illness outbreaks, um, and we can, you know, we'll, we can talk more about that as we get into sure. this conversation. Well, I, I, let's let's keep going with this bacteria idea because I did see. I mean, the first the, cha- the book opens with a chapter about dumpster diving with right. you know some guy, which yeah. was really vi- totally hilarious. Um, you're a very funny writer. I really enjoyed it, and um, and then you know you go on to the larger questions of you know Pasteur versus, um, of course his name is escaping me now, but um, but another scientist who was saying yep. that you know we really need to have more bacteria, not less of it, and that right. Let's let's keep going on that because I think that's a very interesting idea. Yeah. So you know, I mean, one of the reasons I kicked the book off with the dumpster diving chapters, I really wanted to alert people early on, um, you know, in addition to it being sort of a fun scene and, and you, know, sort of, you know, I hope anyway, lively and engaging scene, um, I really wanted to alert people that this is maybe not um, the food safety book they were expecting if they were just sort of <laughs> expecting to, to yeah, read definitely. about, you know, young kids dying of E. coli and all yeah. that, which, which, you know, I just want to say right now that does happen and that's very tragic. Indeed but, it does, absolutely. Um, but one of the things, um, you know, the, actually, and one of the, that, that whole dumpster diving episode, uh, and spending time with this friend of mine, um, who who I learned uh, over the course of writing this book, d- does source a lot of his uh, calories, about a third to half of his calories, out of the trash. Um, was one of the things that really started to inform my thinking on uh, this whole issue of bacteria, and that maybe we were thinking about it. Uh, you know, we're thinking about it in a we're kind of thinking in a box, I guess, and and it's a box that has been built and designed um, by a, pharma, a pharmaceutical industry, and in part by a pharmaceutical industry that would like us to believe that, you know, we should always um, be do everything we can to to live in a very clean, if not sterile, environment. Um, so. You know, when I learned that this guy was eating so much out of the trash, I became super intrigued because he'd been doing this for about 10 years. Uh, and he, there's only one time in those 10 years that he can attribute his diet um, to actually uh, uh, making him ill. Um, so the reason I found this interesting is because, according to the CDC, at the time, the CDC has since revised their numbers, but at the time, this was about a year and a half ago, the CDC was telling us that there were about 74 million cases of foodborne illness a year annually in the U.S. Um, and so I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, that's like, you know, enough for, uh, every, you know, 25% of Americans basically to have an episode of foodborne illness. And yet here's a guy who's eating out of the trash, which, you know, has to put him in one of the highest risk categories you can imagine. Sure. And he's, you know, he can, he's saying that in 10 years there's once that he's been sickened um, by, uh, by acute foodborne illness. I have actually since come to believe that that one episode um, was not acute foodborne illness because it was an episode 
um, where he became ill very, very shortly, like within hours of consuming um, the product. And the reality of most of these bacterium is that it takes um, anywhere from days to weeks. They have an incubation period of days to weeks before you actually um, will, will sort of suffer the symptoms. Well, that's uh, what makes it so hard to trace them back, isn't it? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, you know, I started looking into more, of the, you know, okay, so why is this guy, if, if there's so much foodborne illness out there, um, why is this guy not getting sick? Mm-hmm. That that was sort of the you know the sort of root question that I started wanting to feel like I had you know felt like I had to answer at least to my own satisfaction. Absolutely, I would want to know that. So, did you come to any conclusions? Yeah, well, I came to a conclusion that satisfies me. Right? <laughs> Let's, Let's hear it, it. that way. Um, and I think you know my conclusion is that. I mean, there's a couple of things. One, in a very sort of odd way, this fellow, um, and, and I, you're going to have to sort of, you know, bear with me here for a second, but he's actually fairly careful about what he eats. In other mm-hmm. words, you know, I'd had this assumption that, you know, we were going to be like, you know, hanging out in the back of Burger King and Pizza Hut and whatever, and, and, he, and but he wouldn't touch that stuff with a 10-foot, 10-foot pole. He Is that right? He, he wouldn't go in the front door of one of those places and eat, eat that stuff, uh, you know, from, from off, off the tray. Right. Um, because he just thinks, you know, he sees that as absolutely, you know, disgusting junk food. Um, but he is so he's very selective in this strange way about where he dies. So he dives in very, um, uh, you know, a sort of uh, he, he sort of goes around to these producers. We live in a region where there's a lot of sort of um, you know high end artisanal food production, and, and he, that's what he seeks out. Um, the other thing I think is that uh, he the, a big part of his diet, in addition to um, his the, the food he's finding in the trash, um, he eats a lot of fermented foods. Um, like sauerkraut, kimchi, um, yogurt, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things I found as I was researching this book is that fermented foods are really, really rich in um, a wide uh, diversity of bacterium and enzymes. And so when you eat them, you're basically populating your gut with these sort of healthy bacteria. You know, we think of bacteria, I think this is really sad. We have this kind of I think, cultural phobia of bacteria. So we hear bacteria and we automatically think, you know, oh, that's something i got to protect myself from, right? But the reality is there are 9 to 10 bacterial cells in your body for every human cell. So you are actually more them than you are. If that makes sense, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. So, you know, which can only lead me to sort of, you know, the, the only assumption you can draw from that is that actually bacteria, you know, are all around us. They're part of us. They're actually very essential to our well-being. Um, we think of, even if you uh, think of like E. coli, okay, someone says E. coli, and you think, oh, i got to avoid that. You know, you have been sort of infected, if you will, with E. coli since the day you were born, okay? And there are 700-plus sure. varieties of E. coli. There's only a handful that can actually make you ill. So the reality is, is I think, you know, owing to a few news headlines, um, We've become, and owing to an industry that would very much like to sell us uh, uh, microbial hand wipes, you know, antimicrobial hand wipes and soaps, uh, you know, we've become um, incredibly sensitive and paranoid to the idea that there is bacteria in our food, when the reality is it's really essential to have bacteria in our food and healthy bacteria in our food, because that's what creates, um, an, a, the, the term is terrain, that's what creates an in- internal terrain that uh, provides um, you know, health and vitality and well-being, so much so that when you are, if you are, exposed to a bacteria that can make you ill, you have the capacity to fight it off. 
Well, that that makes some sense to me, but I have to say that I think that uh, in the in the early days of pasteurization, for example, just as the most primary example of when we started yep. to clean up our food, uh, it was kind of essential to do it, and people were succumbing to foodborne illnesses at at a much greater rate. There was a lot more uh, tuberculosis, Campylobacter. I mean, yeah. there was tons yeah. of yeah. stuff in milk that right. needed to be extracted. And um, I, unfortunately, this program is not long enough for us to have a debate about raw milk. But I would love to talk to you about that because you had a really great chapter about it. Yeah, um, and I'm going to do something about raw milk in the future. But um, yeah, well, let me let me just really briefly address okay. exactly what you're talking about. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not here to champion raw milk or or pasteurized milk or anything. I think there's no question that pasteurization, which sort of came widely um, into use in the in about in the 1930s, roughly. Um, was, you know, uh, at least in the short term, a very, um, you know, a great uh, public health benefit, no question about that. But part of the reason was that the, the conditions in which we were, we were keeping our dairy livestock in that day and age were absolutely rapacious. It was disgusting. Um, they were mostly located in cities on, you know, and they were, lived in these sort of, they called them swill dairies, and they were fed off, uh, from the mash, the leftover mash from distilleries, um, and so the you know basically the sanitation was absolutely you know uh, abhorrent it was it was horrific um, and so the, there was no question that you know when pasteurization came along and we were able to basically cook that milk um, to the point where it wasn't carrying these bacterium that could make people sick there was a, a, a precipitous drop in in um, you know I'm not even gonna say foodborne I'm gonna say dairy borne you know mm-hmm. acute dairy borne illness no, you're you're absolutely right on that. Um, so, yeah, this is not sort of a black and white thing. You know, there there is definitely sort of shades of gray here, and we should acknowledge that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all for the shades of gray. I mean, I, I see way too much black and white in, uh, right. in, people's, yeah. in people's conversations about, about food and the food system and, and the way we eat here and now well, in the and United it, States. It, you know, you talk about black, I mean, raw milk. I mean, there's, you know, it's, it's such an emotional issue. I know, uh, and why? And- well, you know, I don't really know. Uh, you know, I think I think people. I you know, I I actually think I do know. I think it's because people see it um, as an issue of food rights as much as they see it as any particular Indeed. food product. Yeah. Um, and it really, and I feel this too. You know, I I feel like no one really has the right to tell me what food I I sh- I should be able to procure and consume. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, the, the federal agencies that regulate our food system just don't agree with that view. Um, there's no question, strictly speaking, uh, you know, looking at the numbers, the hard numbers, even according to the FDA and the USDA, raw milk doesn't even make the top 10 of their most dangerous foods. And yet they are, you know, they're on a pretty serious campaign to, um, you know, to lean on to shut uh, it down. raw milk producers. Uh, and, but you know, there are quite a few out, outbreaks. I, again, not to advocate for raw milk or anything, right. but pasteurization is not a panacea. The most recent deaths associated with milk in this country are from pasteurized milk. So we need to we need to recognize that. Well, I, I, I you know, like you, I follow uh, Bill Marler with great, um, you know, our right. time is like ticking away here. Let, let, let's let's take a like a 30 second break, Ben. Okay. Stay on the phone and then we regroup because we only have 10 minutes left and there's so oh, much no, more no, to no, talk no, about. <laughs> You're going to come back.
Welcome back to Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network.com. We are broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, and my name is Katie Kiefer. On the line with me is author Ben Hewitt. His book, Making Supper Safe, One Man's Quest to Learn the Truth About Food Safety, is our topic today. Um, and Ben, we just, I mean, we just got veered off into the whole raw milk thing. I think we have to have another whole show about that. So I'm going to I'm gonna jump you next to um, the segment uh, that discusses, I mean, you broke your, your book out into primary food groups like meat, eggs, milk, seeds, as in like, you know, um, Monsanto type GMO seeds, um, aquaculture, and uh, yeah, and that's it. And so let me ask you this, what was what were the things, could you give me like a thumbnail of like, what were the things that scared you the most about each one of these food groups? You know, I, I mean, I think I, I, what scares me the most about um, dairy, it, it gets back to that issue of food rights, um, and that you know a lot of the regulations um, that are that are in place right now around food, um, and a lot of you know uh, almost always again about uh, around the issue of food safety make it very very difficult for um, uh, the implementation of small scale food systems. Which I think is you know if you really want to get to the you know what's the solution to all this, and actually Bill Marler agrees with me on this, I'm sure is that does. we need. You know, we need to totally rethink our food system. It's just gone off the rails, um, and that we, you know, we we need to get to a place where we are re-regionalizing food production, so that we don't have situations, facilities where you know one source point of contamination can sicken literally tens of thousands of people. That's what yeah. we've got going on right now. Okay, let's talk about meat for a second. Sure. Um, My favorite that, subject. You know, and I, I'm, uh, I'm going to try to make this really quick, but it's going to be hard. Um, <laughs> the issue with meat that really freaks me out the most um, is the issue of drug-resistant bacterium. Yeah. Um, uh, owing to the practice of feeding sub-therapeutic, sub-clinical doses of uh, antibiotics to livestock. Okay, 75% of the antibiotics produced in this country are fed to our livestock for the purposes of growth promotion. Um, yep. The problem is, is this thing called lateral gene transfer, LGT. What happens is the animals are eating this, this, these antibiotics. The bacterium that are in their bodies are slowly becoming resistant to the antibiotics. All right, and what happens is that the, the what's called the resistance genes in those bacterium can actually insert themselves into bacterium, uh, across, you know, basically across the spectrum. So they can actually insert themselves into other species of bacterium. So this isn't about you know you, Katie, going out and like kissing a cow and catching you know drug resistant Salmonella or E. coli right. from it. This is about the broader dissemination of these resistance genes throughout our society. Well, you know the what? most, the most. I mean, I'll just interrupt you for a second and say that yeah. the, the biggest issue, uh, the biggest example of that, is the recent recall of ground turkey by Cargill, which was uh, contaminated with Salmonella Heidelberg, which is resistant to all of the cephalexin, cephalosporin right. drugs I, that w- are was, so widely used in in uh, human consumption. It was the same issue with what was going on in Germany yes. um, earlier this year. That that variant of E. coli was particularly. Uh, dangerous because it, nothing they couldn't find anything to kill it. Um, right. So, you know what's going on right now is that you know we have um, a situation where we have no one knows for sure, but most estimates I got where we have six figures, so over a hundred thousand Americans dying annually because of drug resistant bacterium. And this is happening, um, a lot of this, given the fact that we feed three-quarters of our antibiotics to livestock, you know, 
it's very clear that a lot of this is coming, a lot of these deaths could be traced back to um, the way we raise meat in this country. And yet the pharmaceutical industry and the livestock industry uh, vociferously deny that there is any connection whatsoever between oh, sure. human resistance uh, or, you yes. know, uh, resistant Absolutely. bugs in humans and, and what they've been doing with livestock for the last, it's, it's really only been about 25 years that they've been, uh, have incorporated this regime of adding antibiotics uh, regularly right. to Right, and you know, and people have this feed. assumption that it's because it's to keep the animals, you know, quote-unquote healthy so they don't get sick from each other because they're well, kept, Well, part of you know, that so is that, yeah. It, part of it is, but the primary reason and what, what I find is so, you know, infuriating about all this is that um, the, the primary reason is growth promotion, sure. um, and again, it gets back to bacterium. When you when you take an antibiotic as a human or feed it to an animal, it goes into your gut. It kills not only the bacterium it's designed to kill, but it also kills a lot of other bacterium. So it allows you to actually you're, you don't have that competitive environment for the uptake of calories. So when those animals are fed, they uptake their calories a little bit more efficiently in the order mm-hmm. of depending on the species, you know, two to like eight percent. So for you know a handful of percentage uh, gain in profits, essentially, um, you know we are as a culture, a society, being sort of forced to assume the risk of these rampant drug uh, drug resistant bacterium. You know, we have stopped giving antibiotics to certain categories of human patients right now. For instance, uh, late stage cancer patients, we used to just give them antibiotics as a matter of course because we knew it would save some of their lives because their immune system was so depleted. Mm-hmm. We have stopped doing that because we're afraid of creating drug-resistant bacterium in our medical system. So at the very same time that we have decided to let certain um, sectors of patients die earlier than they would have, um, the livestock industry is continuing to feed 75% of the antibiotics produced in this country to its animals. So, you know, it's it's absolutely insane what's going on. Yeah, it's pretty, it is, it's very frightening. I mean, um, the bugs are evolving faster than we can develop new antibiotics for them. So, uh, you know, bacteria evolve, uh, parasites evolve, things That's right. develop their resistance, yeah. and they do it very quickly because their their turnover is... Right. It's like, you know, breeding uh, traits in and out of, of livestock. You know, you do it in three or four generations. The same thing happens within a cellular structure, but it happens that much faster. Um, one of the things that... <clears throat> Sorry. One of the things that I, I wanted to bring up with you is like, especially since we're talking about the meat industry, which is a particular interest of mine, is um, I recently, you know, about a year ago, I visited a Cargill processing plant out in Colorado. And I was, mm-hmm. I have to say, I was wildly impressed right. um, with the level of uh, care and, um, you know, and money that they had invested in identifying places where bacteria could grow and, and trying to eliminate that possibility. They seem to take their food safety extremely seriously. Of course, right. as you pointed out, they're dealing in millions and millions of pounds of product, which can be contaminated by one source. So it, it, they, it really stands to reason that they do make that investment. But um, what could they do? What more could they do? I mean, granted that I don't think Cargill is going to be going away anytime soon. Right. Um, what more could happen that would make our food supply, especially things like ground beef patties, you know, pre-processed foods, um, which, you know, convenience foods that are, are really almost always the primary cause of, of foodborne illnesses. What could they do that was better, do you think? Well, you know, uh, you know, having not visited a cargo plant as you have, you, you know, you may have in, in some ways a little more insight into this question than I do. Um, but I guess you know, one thing they could do um, is to stop the practices, uh, stop the practices of combining meat from, in some cases, dozens of animals into. You know, you, when you go to buy one of those preformed, um, you know, burger patties at Costco or wherever it is that you buy it, um, you're buying. 
you know, burgers that are made from the bits and pieces of, um, you know, sometimes dozens, if not more animals. So there's, you oh, know, there's such a sort of... Hundreds, if not thousands. I mean, exactly. if you're talking I mean, about you a know, plant... There's no way to really know. But, this... but so, you know, people have this idea of like, <laughs> excuse me, um, you know, when they buy a burger, they think they think of you know they're you know going down to the butcher and you get you know he takes the he takes the chuck roast or whatever it is and he sticks it in the grinder and out this other end comes this comes this you know fresh ground meat you know that's that's like 180 degrees from what's going on in these in these large scale uh, meat production facilities. Um, and so, uh, you know, again, it gets back to that, you know, I'm glad to hear that you were impressed and that they have all of those sort of, uh, you know, uh, stop gaps in place. Uh, it, you know, it's so essential because they do, there are just so many ways uh, and places for this stuff to, to enter into the system, particularly when these are your practices. You know, I'm, I'm still going to argue that no matter how careful you are, unless you get to a place where you're irradiating the, everything that's coming out of these factories, um, which would be horrible for us uh, for our long term health you're, 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 you it's it, there is no way to eliminate the risk of this stuff and and so I think we need to acknowledge that because as consumers, the more that we demand for the elimination of risk, uh, the more we're going to see regulations that are going to really make it difficult for small scale production to thrive and that 's what we need to understand we need to recognize that there is an inherent safety advantage in regionalized food production. And Bill Marley would absolutely agree with me on this, and he's much more of a hawk than I am regarding, you know, regarding this stuff. Um, and, you know, we got to understand that if you have, as Bill likes to say, okay, this is a great quote from Bill Marler, you know, just because you can shake the hand of the guy who sold you your dinner doesn't mean he's not going to poison you. But at, least, <laughs> but at least you'll know where to Spoken find like him. Spoken like a true litigator. <laughs> right? Um, we should backtrack just for a second. I want to let listeners know that Bill Marler is uh, one of the primary attorneys in the Marler and Clark law firm, which um, I don't know if people remember the big E. coli story that was in the New York Times and won a Pulitzer a couple of years ago about the girl, Stephanie, whatever her name was, who yeah, the dancer, it's in, book, it's in your book, head, but, but anyway, um, and, and he litigated for her, but he's litigated many, many, many foodborne illness cases um, and has a very strict, as you point out in your book, a very strict criteria for what, what determines his willingness to take on a case or not. Um, he right. is the rock star of food safety. He has uh, an innumerable number of blogs, posts, newsletters, etc. I urge oh, the people guy is to... Like, he must not sleep. I mean, he I, just, really, you and know. he has a great team of reporters working for him. I mean, they really are superb. I, I'm really hoping to get him on the show uh, in the future because I'd love to keep talking about food safety. But... Um, do you think that, I mean, one of the, just to bring up Bill Marler, you quoted Bill in um, your book, um, the job of FSIS, which is the Food Safety Inspection Services, uh, is supposed to be ensuring public health. It isn't supposed to be finding a balance between Cargill and making an extra two cents per pound right. of hamburger right. and ensuring public health. I mean, right. what's the role of government in all of this? I mean, we were talking earlier about, um, you know, raw milk and, and how objectionable it is to have the government tell us what we can eat. And yet, at the same time, we really need government reg- regulations uh, to make our food system safer and uh, and to eliminate these conflicts of interest between uh, corporate you know interests and uh, and the guys who are making our laws. Right. So what, what's your well, take on I, you that? Know, I, I I don't want it to sound like I'm a fan of deregulation. I I am not. Um, I, I think there absolutely is a role for government. What I think. Um, again, though, we need to come back to acknowledging that you know small-scale food production is has an inherent safety advantage just in regards to the scale. Yeah. Um, so, you know, 
what I would like to see is the, instead of having the government and the FDA expending so many resources, and Bill probably would not agree with me on this one, but you know, be that as it may, um, expending so many resources chasing small-scale producers of raw milk um, when you know the consumers who are purchasing that product are are you know really that's a product they want and are acknowledging it, and I think by and large accepting that risk. Instead of having them expend those kind of resources, I want to see them expend resources going after the large-scale producers and, and really keeping tabs on them. I mean, right now we have a situation where the FDA inspects a given facility only once every seven years. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, scary. I think there's no question we need a little, we need, you know, more muscular um, regulation, but we have to, uh, you know, again, it, it, it has to be tiered in a way that does not disadvantage small-scale food producers, and that's what we've got right now. I, yeah, I'm, I'm agreeing with you 100%, but I will play devil's advocate here for a second and say the following, which is that small-scale producers do not have the resources to put into place the kinds of safety mechanisms that something like Cargill can, and um, and I think that that's a, a real risk that people should be aware of in, in terms of small-scale production as well. You are not going to have an infrared or an ultraviolet light that shows organic fecal material on your raw carcass um, the way Cargill does when they before they send it down the line and then they power wash it. You know, it's like, I mean, these it's like, yes, you can say that these safety regulations um, are are um, inherently uh, skewed towards large producers but at the same time um, it's it's also important that small producers observe the same protocols whether it's animal welfare approved or certified humane or or it's going to be super clean or whatever it is. I mean they have to toe that line too. Um, not that they have to install ultraviolet lights but they do have to um, you know observe a very significant measure of, of safety protocols in order to make right. their food our uh, regionalized food supply safe. As you safe. know yeah I, I'm not gonna I don't disagree with that um, but but I, I think that, you know, I mean, really what I'm talking about here, and, and this may not, is not going to sit well with everyone, is people becoming much more, and what, uh, you know, what I would argue we need for all sorts of reasons, not just food safety. I mean, we have to move away from an agricultural system that is, is uh, you know, it, agriculture right now is the large, as a sector, the largest user of energy in our country. It's one Absolutely. of our and greatest. Water. It's one of our greatest vulnerabilities, basically, from all sorts of standpoints. Um, and so, um, you know, we, we are, you know, people, uh, consumers, if you will, uh, you know, I sort of hate the word consumer because it sounds so sort of, uh, you know, it sounds so anti, you know, uh, uh, it sounds so black. Anti people people are, aren't really, you know, engaging. What, that's exactly what we need. The opposite of we need people to become not just consumers but participants in their food system. I so, agree. you know, people on a regional level, sort of taking the time. I mean, this is like the most important commerce you engage in on a regular basis, right? On a day to day basis, this is something that you're putting into your body. I mean, there's nothing more, you know, unless you're like I don't know, going to a prostitute or something. There's nothing more intimate, no, no more intimate form of commerce. Do you know what? I'm saying? I do. Uh, and so I, I think and we've come to a place um, culturally where, you know, we're totally disengaged and we want to just like hand over all the responsibility for the production um, and for the oversight of this commerce to other people. And that's just not, you know, that's, that has a very short historical precedent. I mean, we're talking, you know, really 50, 60 years that Absolutely. it's been like that. So what, we, what I would argue we're living through right now and this is getting to way bigger issues than E. coli and salmonella and whatever. But what I, you know, I think we're 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 living in the aberration, right? 
we're, we're living in this strange little weird little bubble where we can, we can sort of, you know, quote-unquote, afford to have this distance from our food. Um, and it, it's, it's going to come back around for innumerable reasons. And so I think that we need to sort of, as, as consumers slash participants, you know, they're, they're, the, the future is going to ha- be having a much more participatory nature relationship with our food um, and and you know sort of not necessarily expecting um, that it's it's something that we can just leave to everyone else to either the producer or the government. Well, Ben, unfortunately, we have to wrap this up. Um, so I'm going to ask you to uh, just let people know if um, making supper safe is available in any bookstore and on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, etc. Um, and also, uh, do you have any readings coming up or any events that people should know about? We do reach uh, a pretty see. big I audience. I am actually. I just finished off a very intense period of that. I would have to look at my website, at my appearances. What is your what's website coming next? But I would, you know, if people want to keep tabs on what I'm up to, they can go to BenHewitt.com. Net, um, and that that has my appearances, that has uh, links to order my books, um, and you know actually has some writings and more of my thoughts uh, regarding the food system and re- relocalizing economies around um, the issue around small scale agriculture. Well, you have been an absolutely fabulous guest. I hope to, we will do this again. I'd love. There's like many many topics in that book that I would love to address with you. So let's uh, we'll talk after the show. Um, but uh, thank you so much for joining me today on uh, Straight No Chaser. Um, many thanks to my uh, producer and engineer Jack. Inslee. Next week, uh, we'll be with Alex Prudhomme, the best-selling author of My Life in Provence, but who is coming out with a new book right now called The Ripple Effect, all about our water system. So please do uh, come back and join us again next week on Sunday for Straight No Chaser. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next week. listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. following is a message from Jones Family Farms. Jones Family Farms is a 400-acre working farm offering quality agricultural products all year round, from fresh summer berries to Christmas trees in the winter, and an award-winning winery that is open from April to December. The reach of the Jones Family Farms is hard to capture, from their advocacy work, through the Working Lands Alliance, to ongoing classes in the Harvest Kitchen. Jones Family Farms is as passionate about education as it is about farming. Whether you're picking fresh strawberries or exploring local wines, we hope you're inspired to learn more about Connecticut farming. Visit www.jonesfamilyfarms.com for more information.